0: Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. I was in this town in 1980, and I've got to tell you a little bit. My name is Earl, I'm an alcoholic. I was in this town and, uh, tell a little bit about my background. I have to, to tell you how I met Mickey. And, uh, I am a gynecologist and I'm also a psychiatrist. I have both specialties. But also in the course of my medical works, I was the gynecologist on the Kinsey books. Do you remember the Kinsey books on sex? So I've been in sex education and sex Counseling, in addition to the operating room and the counseling room and all this stuff, for many years. Uh, the second author of the Kinsey books is a man named Pomeroy. I've known him for 40 years. And uh Mickey was in school where Pomeroy, having Pomeroy, having left the Kinsey Institute in Indiana, uh had come out here and was the academic dean where Mickey was studying for her Ph.D. And Mickey went to Wardell and said, uh, Wardell, I need somebody who is knowledgeable in both the sex field and the alcohol field, and I don't know of anyone. He said, New to I. And then he said, yes, I do. I have a man in mind, and he's up right now in Seattle. She said, do you suppose that we could write to him and get him down here and and uh, I right asked him if he'd be on my committee for my PhD, and he said, well, he'll be here tomorrow. Wardell had contacted me to come down to be the medical director of the institute where Mickey was studying. So I arrived the next day and and uh, met Wardell, and we went in the big room. We have some hot tubs, and we undressed and got in the hot tub. We were talking about old times and So Wardell said, there's a student here I want you to meet. So he picked up the phone and called up to the secretary's office. And Mickey, in addition to being a student, was also doing some work there. She's an excellent accountant. And uh, he said to the one who answered the phone, would you please send Mickey down to the hot tub room? So Mickey came down, came in, took off her clothes, got in the hot tub. And Wardell said, Earl, this is Mickey. And I said, how do you do? She said... Said uh, she. Said, "Well, will you be on my Ph.D. committee?" And I said, "Baby, I'll do more than that. I'll marry you." <laughs> so you see, you got to stay away from hot tubs. That's what happened. To you. <laughs> well, let's see. <clears throat> Let me tell you a little bit about my drinking history. I'm not going to tell you all of it because, uh, first of all, it's none of your business. And the second place, it wouldn't do us any good. My drinking story was fundamentally like yours. But I'll tell you a little bit about the first day of my drinking and about the last day of my drinking. And fill you in a little bit of in-between. The first drink I ever had was in 1926. I was 15 years of age. I lived in San Francisco my mother and father were both alcoholics. My father was a rather consistent drinker, not drunk all the time. My mother was a periodic; she got drunk, oh, maybe twice a year for two or three days. When she got drunk, hugged the walls; she was coming through. And uh, so I came by my own alcoholism rather justifiably. We now know in the medical profession that uh, it's widely accepted now that alcoholism is a genetic inherited susceptibility. Now, not everyone in a family of alcoholics becomes alcoholic. I have a brother. He's 18 months younger than I he was not an alcoholic. We, we go out to dinner, Mickey and I, and, and my brother Dick and his wife Lynn for Christmas or Thanksgiving. And... uh We'll go to a hotel and have uh, the Christmas dinner, let us say. And he orders a martini. And he takes the martini and he looks at it through the light, like that. Then he puts it underneath his nose to get the bouquet. Then he looks at it again. And then he takes it to his lips and he sips it. Then he has the temerity to sit the damn thing down again, like that. And early in my sobriety career or in my drinking career, I would think to myself, why don't you knock that thing off? You know. <laughs> but you see, he is a sensible, normal drinker. You see, we as alcoholics know how to drink booze badly. We are we are slobs when it comes to drinking. We know just how to slurp it in, you see. So not everyone in an alcoholic family becomes alcoholic, and he is not one. Well, anyway, I uh, didn't have, I had no opportunity to drink uh, in 1926 because in my home, when my parents were not drinking, we became very dry. We had nothing in the house at all. When we, uh, when they were drinking, when well, we had alcohol all over the place, but. We didn't dare try it because we were too busy staying out of the way, my brother and me. Then this is also the days of prohibition, and it was illegal. And uh, so I had no opportunity to, to drink. So a friend of mine, who was now a retired colonel from the Army and I, went up to Gurnwood, or Gurnville, which is in the Russian River, some of you may know in California, not too far outside of San Francisco, specifically to try alcohol. We got there, and we got a tent. Now, they didn't have cabins in those days. They were were platforms with tents over them, and there were a whole row series of them down here, maybe ten tents on this side and ten tents on that side. We then went to a bootlegger whose name was Martinelli, old Ma Martinelli. She had great big varicose veins on her leg, and she was a plenty Mamma Mia. She had about ten children, and she was just beautiful. Uh, in 1932, when Prohibition was repealed, she uh, started the Martinelli Winery, which is now known down in California. And she makes, maybe some of you had up here, Martinelli apple juice. That's from old Ma Martinelli. Well, we got four quarts of red wine. Why that number, I have no idea. We went back to our tents, and my friend Art sat on his uh, little cot, And I sat on mine, and we unplugged our quarts of wine. And I took a gulp of wine, and this was something. I had never had such a sensation before, so rather promptly, I drank my quart of wine. Then I looked up, and here was Art staring straight on in space like that. And he had drunk his quart down a little bit more than halfway. Well, I was frightened. I didn't know what had happened to him, you know. So I said, Art, and this jostled the air enough so that he finally fell over in a bed like that. And I thought he had died. I didn't know what had happened to him. So I went over and I shook him. And I could tell he was drunk. I'd seen my father I'm drunk, you know, and I could see So wearily, I put his feet up on his cot, covered him with a blanket, and then I didn't know what to do. I went out to the tent, I remember, went outside the tent and walked up and down between the rows of tents. And I recall, I was a little bit gassed by this time, I recall looking up at the sky and it was a beautiful starlit night. Just gorgeous. Now, why I remember that, I have no idea. At any rate, I came back in the... The the uh, the tent uh, and I sat down on my cot and I didn't know what to do. Suddenly my eyes fell on his unfinished quart of wine and the other two. Well, I went over and took his unfinished quart of wine and rather promptly drank it down. Then I noticed the other two quarts of wine and I unplugged both of them. And slowly I drank the other two quarts of wine. Now that's three and a half quarts almost of wine for a youngster of 15. It's a wonder I didn't die. Well, I passed out and I awakened the next morning on my bed with my clothes on with vomit all over me. I just felt terrible and I had a terrible hangover and I felt exceedingly guilty and I didn't know what to do. But one thing, I never liked wine much after that. Wine, <laughs> wine, that. From the first time I drank, you see, of, of the vast majority, not all, but the vast majority of alcoholics are born with a high tolerance to all drugs. Uh, all addictions, by the way, are the same. I don't care whether it's heroin or morphine or whether it's, Whether it's cocaine, or whether it's marijuana, or whether it's amphetamines. I got addicted to amphetamines, too. I'll tell you about it in a minute. Or booze. They're all the same addiction. The receptor sites are the same in the brain. And it's something that only a few of us, uh, not this audience, few in the world, have the uh, genetic makeup to develop the disease of alcoholism. We have that. We are not responsible for our disease. We are not responsible for it at all. But we are very responsible for our recovery. Very responsible. Like the diabetic. The diabetic is not responsible for his or her disease. But he or she is very responsible for his or her recovery. We're in the same boat. Well, at any rate, the rest of my life, I drank... Just the same way. For my first drink, I drank alcoholically, but from then on, my periods of drinking were not too common. I was in school, finally the university, and finally medical school. So I had—I was planning a career, and I completed it, and uh, I didn't drink too often. But when I drank, I drank just exactly like that—vast amounts. To sit down and to and take a drink was foreign to me. I didn't. As a matter of fact, sometimes in my drinking career, people would say, let's have a drink. And when they said it, I got kind of sick. What for? What is that for? You know, but if I had the anticipation of this endless period, time period of drinking, let's go, baby, let's go. That's the way I was. In 1938 or 9, uh, it happened. The drug companies were putting out little boxes of six or seven uh, bits of medicine inside of them. There was second all, there was no thought about addiction in those days. Uh, second all, two and all, nembutol, amphetamines, and so forth. I discovered amphetamines. And I took amphetamines and went right up in the sky and drank more. And Bill and I became very close friends. And he drank to to dream greater dreams, and I drank and used amphetamines to drink to uh, dream greater dreams. Uh, it was just magnificent to me at first. Well, as the time went by, it got to be a ridiculous story. And let me tell you, let me skip to the last day of my drinking. I must say that I never drank in my office. I never endangered a patient. I never drank and I was never in the hospital drunk. I went in the hospital three or four times or five when I was a little drunk to get something from my surgical locker, but I had no patients that I had to take care of. So I didn't endanger anyone's life. Had I continued on drinking, that would have occurred, but it it, it didn't. Well, On the last day of my drinking, I went to a place known as Sam's Restaurant in Tiburon, California, which is just across the bay from San Francisco, and it was the 15th of June in 1953, so I've been sober just a few days over 33 years. And I went to Sam's Restaurant, and I ordered a wearing blender full of vodka fizzes and three double vodka martinis. I can I can just see them on the bar. Now, I like sweet drinks as well as straight drinks. I love the taste of straight vodka or bourbon. I get it on my fingers and I lick my fingers. I liked it. I also like sweet drinks. As a matter of fact, when I drank, I didn't eat, but I did eat one thing, and that was candy. Now, that kind of makes most alcoholics sick, but it didn't make me sick. That's what I did. But I was sort of ashamed of that for some years until I read the book John Barleycorn by Jack London. Now, Jack London didn't coin the phrase John Barleycorn, but he popularized it. And he, as as you may know, died an alcoholic. And I read in that book that Jack London ate candy when he drank, and I thought it was good enough for Jack, it's good enough for me. (laughs) Well, I... On this, the 15th day of June, 1953, I wasn't completely blacked out on that day. I was kind of browned out. <laughs> so I'll tell you a few of the events. But before I do, I must tell you that it never occurred to me that I was alcoholic, that I was a drunk, that I was in trouble with booze, that I, I went on the wagon many times, that I couldn't stay on it. I remember one time I went in the wagon on Sunday night, and I stayed on the wagon until Friday. I came home Friday night, I poured a big, you know, these big glasses they used to make Manhattans in, and I poured vodka in it to the top and drank it down. And as I drank it, I said to myself, I thought you said you weren't going to drink again. I just couldn't stop. Well, at any rate, I'll tell you a few of the events that I do recall. I recall uh, sometime in the early afternoon, I lived in Mill Valley, California at the time, I went up the hill to see a college fraternity brother of mine. He was a fraternity class. He wasn't a classmate. He was two years behind. So I didn't know him too well. You know how it is in college when you're two years ahead of someone, the age difference is great. The age difference does not make a difference at all. I went up to see him. His name was Harry. I went up to see Harry, and why I went there, I have no idea. I was not seeking sobriety. I was not seeking Alcoholics Anonymous. I somehow went up to see him, and I did. I went up there, and he said, you know, I uh, am no longer drinking. And I said, is that so? He'd been in lots of trouble. He'd been in jail several times. His wife had left him. He was rather well-to-do. He had inherited some money, so he wasn't in financial difficulty. He said, yes, I've joined Alcoholics Anonymous. Do you know about Alcoholics Anonymous? And I did, because I had read Jack Alexander's article in the Saturday Evening Post. How many here have ever read that article? Jack? Alexander. Yeah, mostly read I read it when it came out. It's now part of official AA literature, and I eventually knew Jack Alexander rather well. Anyway, I had read it, and in there it said that AA was founded by both a stockbroker named Bill and a doctor named Bob. And because there was a doctor involved, I identified with this. So that's all I knew about AA. So he gave me a couple of pieces of paper like this that came together and were bound here at the side. And you opened them up, and they were, they were about 25 sentences addressed to the active alcoholic who was about to stop drinking. This had come from Akron, Ohio, where Dr. Bob was. <clears throat> and uh, the scene changes. I'm now at home on my deck trying to read this pamphlet, but I'm so drunk, I just couldn't make it out. <laughs> so I asked my wife, my then wife, to read it to me, and she did. She read, don't give up drinking for anybody else except yourself. Then it said, I wouldn't plan on giving up drinking. That's what it said. It said, don't consider yourself a martyr because you stopped drinking, implying you're in trouble. I wasn't planning on stopping drinking. Seriously, I wasn't. I somehow broke down and cried. Well, crying was par for the course in those days. I'd drive along and i on my car and I'd hear Bing Crosby sing and I'd cry. Or I'd see a cloud in the sky and I'd cry. Or I wouldn't see a cloud and I'd cry. (laughs) I'd look at my wife and daughter and cry. I'm sure they looked at me and cried too. (laughs) Well, it was then about five or so in the afternoon, and I went up the side of the hill, we live on the side of a mountain, about 15 or 16 steps up to a barbecue area where I could make the barbecue fire for the evening meal. And I recall sloshing up these stairs drunk. I got to the top stair, and I looked at my glass, and I had about, oh, a finger left in the bottom. And I said to myself as I watched the glass, this will never do. If I'm going to make a fire up there, I should have a full drink. So I thought what I should do is to turn around and go down back on the deck and into the kitchen, which was right off the deck and make a full drink, and take it up there, and I'll have it while I'm making the fire. So I did. I turned around on the stairs, and a perfectly remarkable thing happened to me, and I'll try to tell you about it. Uh, I can't really. It's so personal, and it's so unique, but I'll do the best I can. I, uh, I turned around on the stairs, and I heard the words... This is your last drink. Now, it wasn't quite accurate because I'd already had my last drink. I poured what was in the glass out. Then I had a reaction which was phenomenal. It was as though an explosion occurred inside of me. It just ripped me apart. It tore me apart. I felt literal, literal pain. Well, suddenly I was as clear as I am right this instant. And then the thought occurred to me, Oh, your trouble is that you are an alcoholic. And I reviewed quickly the shakes and sweats and all this that I'd had. You're a drunk. That's, you're an alcoholic. That's your trouble. I had never thought of myself as an alcoholic before. At this instant, the craving to take a drink disappeared from me and has not returned once and a little over 33 years. Now, I want you to know something very unusual was afoot. Well, I laughed back into drunkenness, and I wake in the next afternoon around 2 o'clock, and I, uh, uh, I wasn't wasn't even very much hungover, I remember. I went up to see my friend Harry, and I said, Harry, I've got to go to that Alcoholics Anonymous of yours. Will you take me? He said, sure, I will. So the next... Monday, we, and at that time in Marin County, we only had three meetings. You know, now they've got three hundred, you know, but three meetings. And the next, uh, I guess was Tuesday. He took me to an AA meeting in Mill Valley. Well, let me tell you about my first meeting. I walked into the Methodist Church, the Wesley Hall, and there was a banquet table, you know, a typical four by eight banquet table. And on this end of the table sat a man named Clark, Clark Billingsley, now dead, died in Carson City, Nevada, who was the community butcher in Mill Valley. And on this end of the table sat a little bald-headed guy, only five feet tall, now bald as a billiard ball, whose name was Shorty. And on this side of the table sat a guy named Vern Weir, who was a baker, And on this side of the table sat my friend Harry, who was kind of a, uh, well, 'er ne'er-do-well inventor and the great doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I looked around at these people, and I said, I looked at the butcher and the carpenter, and this was a baker, and this inventor friend of mine, and I thought, what are you doing with these people? And I asked Clark if I could be excused, and Clark said, by all means, doctor. So I walked outside the Wesley Hall, and I stood under the linden tree that's outside, and I took counsel with myself, and I ran down all of my professional accomplishments, all of them, and on my professorial status, and I won't bore you with all that nonsense. And It's not nonsense, but I won't bore you with it. And I stood there tall and erect and said, Do you mean to tell me, says I to the heavens, that you've got to go in there to get a butcher and a carpenter and a baker and a half-baked mechanic to make a man out of you? And then I paused. And after a few seconds, the answer came. And the answer was, you're damn right you do. You get yourself in there. So I walked around, walked back in the meeting, and I want to tell you, never has there been a doctor who has been so grateful to a butcher and a carpenter and a baker and a mechanic as this one. These people just knew how to handle me with the greatest of kid gloves and my great big fat ego. They knew just how to nurture me and cut me down to size, so I didn't really know it until finally I got (laughs) down. (laughs) Well, I dove into AA with all my heart and soul. I mean, I dove in, I was pleased and happy I had found something, I'd found out what my trouble was. God, I'd gone a psychiatrist. Here I was one. But <laughs> you know, there's nothing worse than a confused psychiatrist, you know. <laughs> well, anyway, I, uh, I got, I thought of all kinds of things, but I had never thought about spiritual things. Well, I got a big book and a 12 by 12, and uh, I put them in my car. And by the way, the book that I first put in my car is still there. Every car I get, I transfer that book to a, the new car that I buy, and it's still in the car, still there. It's been there for 33 years. And I got an, several big books, one at my nightstand at home, one in my desk at my office, one at my surgical locker in the hospital, and I had them all over the place. <clears throat> well... There was a group in Mill Valley run by a guy named, I've forgotten his name, but that doesn't make any difference. He ran a group entitled Jesus as Teacher. Now, this was organized by a man named Sharman. Maybe some of you know about Sharman's work. Sharman was not an alcoholic. His brother was, came into AA, by the way. He was from Canada. And this was a, these were works that talked about the uh, not the so-called divinity of Jesus, but the practical aspects of his teachings. But this group, I didn't know it. I didn't know the difference between this and an AA group. This group was a bunch of AA people. I got invited, but it wasn't really an AA group. It was a one-upsmanship group. And they were reading all kinds of literature, uh, you know, by this, by Kelly. Somebody come in and say... Uh, have you read what's on page 98 of uh, Kelly's book? And we said, Oh, my God, no, we haven't. We'd go home and read it. Then we would come back and say, Have you read uh, page 103 of such and such a book? And they'd have to run home and read it. And this, the way this got. So we played one upsmanship. I thought this was what you are supposed to do. I'd done this my whole life anyway. And I'd back and forth and back and forth until about four months went by. And I floated up and up and up, and I was very active in AA, and and in this group, and I floated up, and I was way up here in the sky, and I felt just awful. (laughs) I went to my friend Clark, the butcher, and I said, Clark, there's something wrong with me. I said, uh, I don't know what it is, I might just as well be drunk as be like I am. Well, Clark was a very gentle guy. He looked at me in a very bemused way, and he said, Earl, let me get you a cup of coffee. And by this time, I'd gotten so I hung on every word that Clark said. Shorty and and, and Vern Weir, too. My friend, uh, by the way, that took me to AA, later went back to drinking and died. So he wasn't in the picture now unhappily. Clark got me a cup of coffee and donuts and took me way to the back of the Wesley Hall, and he sat down, his legs crossed, looked way off in the distance, and my eyes were on him every second like a child. Finally, he spoke in his very quiet way, and he said, uh, You know, Earl, I'm very proud of you. All of us are. He said, You know, you've been around here for four months. And he said, uh, I don't blame you for feeling badly. He said, uh, You know, we have... An organization in Mill Valley, it's known as Alcoholics Anonymous. Why don't you join it? <laughs> I said, Clark, what do you mean? Why don't I join? I've been around here for four months and doing. He said, I know you have, but he said this other meeting you go to, which is perfectly all right, you know, has kind of got you on the uppers, and he said, AA might be able to help you in some way. And I didn't quite understand that. He said have you read the big book? And I said, yes, I've read it three times. He said, you don't learn very well, do you? And I said, well, maybe I don't. <laughs> I said, Clark, what would you do if you were in my shoes? Well, he said, I don't know what to say to you, Earl, but if I if I were in your shoes, I would go home and get a hold of the big book and open it to page 70. Now, in those days, we didn't talk about reading how it works, we talked about reading page 70 and thereon until the... Well, we didn't, didn't even say the A, B, and C at the end of that, uh, the uh, chapter 5 that was read tonight. We didn't even say that. Now we do. I'd opened to page 70. I think it's now page 58 or something. And I'd read it. And I went home and I sat down in my living room and opened the big book to page 70, and here is what I read. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Incidentally, when other editions of the big book came out, people were on bill to change the word rarely to never. Never have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. They wanted to change it to never. And he said, "No, I'm not going to do it." He said he was a very wise man, and he said, "You know, there might be some human being that would come along that could, you know." So he said, "Forget this never stuff." Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They're not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. And then it rang through my head. Thoroughly follow our path. Complete honesty uh, rang through my thick skull. I read on. Our stories reveal what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. If you have decided that you want what we have, and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. At some of these we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way. We could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil. Until we let go, absolutely. Remember, we deal with alcohol. Cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it's too much for us. But there is one who has all power, and that one is God. May you find him now. Half measures availed us nothing. It didn't say half measures availed us half. Or 95% measures availed us 95%. It said clearly and succinctly, Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. God, complete abandon, giving myself to the program, total honesty, and not hanging on to old ideas, rang through this man's thick skull. And AA got born within me. Number one, it said, we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol. That our lives had become unmanageable. Now, by the way, it didn't say, doesn't say you have to admit you're powerless over alcohol. All the twelve steps are steps that the first people took. They didn't say you have to take them. If you're going to stay sober, you might be wise to take them. But on the other hand, it didn't say, he just said, here are the steps we took which are suggested as a program of recovery. We admitted that we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Now, after the first half of that first step, it became clear to me over the years, maybe not to you, but to me, that we deal only with the emotional and spiritual and psychological sides of life. And all three of those things are the same. Spirituality, emotional things, psychological things, they're all the same. We just use a different words for them. So the AA program, after that first half step, in the first step, we admitted we're powers over alcohol. From then on, it all is, has to do with our emotions, has nothing to do with our, our material world at all. Came to believe, said number two, that a power greater than ourselves. Now, who is ourselves? That means our fat ego. What is ego? It's all of consciousness. All these things we believe in, all these ideas we fight for, all these ideas we stuff down somebody else's throat, including our own. That's what ego is. All of consciousness is the ego. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity from this ego run. Now, you know... One doesn't have to be very brilliant to become aware of the fact that, you know, there's something very mysterious and mystical and magical going on in this universe. I don't know what it is. I'm sure you don't know what it is. You may think you do, and maybe you do. Maybe I'm the only one who doesn't. But I don't know what it is. I have no idea. There's no question that it's fabulous. There's something very magical in this whole thing. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him, not as you understand him, not as you understand him, not as you understand him, not as we understand him, our own idea. It became perfectly clear to me, and I now say it to you if you will use it, that your life is none of your business. Your life is none of your business. What do you mean, my life's none of my business? Just that, it's none of your business. What well, if I say it's none of my business? What am I supposed to do? Hang out and watch it all come down? That's what you got to do. <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, you know, it's not very, very mysterious. If you think you run the universe, well, be my guest. Uh, I found that it's very difficult for me, and believe me, I'm the president of the organization that tries to run this universe. <laughs> and I, I have handed long ago, I've handed in my resignation, I occasionally take it back a little bit, but I've made a fearless and searching moral inventory of ourselves. Now, you know, A.A. was originally founded on very Christian principles. Uh, it came from the Oxford Movement. Sam Shoemaker, whom I knew very well, and uh, little Eddie Dowling, the little Catholic priest that almost converted Bill into Catholicism, all those guys were in there uh, in the beginning of A.A. And Sam Shoemaker, whom I know knew very well, uh, was the head of the Oxford Movement, in the East, and he was their minister. And it was Ebby Thatcher that was in his congregation who came to Bill and gave him the message. And Ebby was a mean little guy. And we'd sit at conferences now and again, and Ebby and would look up, and as Bill told the story about how Ebby came to his kitchen to give him the message, and Ebby would say to me, that's not the way it happened at all. It didn't happen that way at all. It didn't, it didn't happen that way. Well... <laughs> It's the way Bill saw it. The way Bill saw it and 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 Ebby so. finally accepted that that it's the way Bill saw it. Sure, that's right. <laughs> the program has got some old Christian words in it, and that may sit with some difficulty with some of you, and others it may not. If you don't like the word moral, change it to morale. Morale. Pretty good. You can use that if you want to. It's all right, you can use it. <laughs> Admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Well, I don't know. <clears throat> it's been my experience that we don't have wrongs. I don't think that we have any wrongs. That uh, we may have, uh, we may have some things that we need to that will grow to something else. I think we're all just kind of great just the way we are. If we accept ourselves exactly as we are, change happens. If we don't accept ourselves as we are, change doesn't happen. What you resist will persist. You can take that home with you, too, if you want. You can use that. Life is for living, not for fixing. God, I'm full of them tonight. You can take... (laughs) Yeah, you know. You can take it home with if you want to. So you go to somebody and it's necessary for all of us, some time or other, at the appropriate time. And I'm going to kind of overstate now, but my experience has shown me that we need to strip ourselves, psychologically speaking, totally naked in front of someone. You know, I strip myself physically naked as well as psychologically naked in front of Mickey. We tell one another everything, you know. No secrets. What's with secrets? Who do you keep the secrets from? Just yourself, that's all. So we need to tell all the little things that, that we think are, are, are wrong. They aren't wrong. We all are the same. We all have the same problems. We have the same resentments, the same hatreds, the same joys, the same happiness, the same envies. All of us have the same. You know, we all think, my God, I guess I'm the only one who felt this way and who feels so terrible. And and uh, you know what? Everyone in the same room is doing the same thing. I guess I'm so terrible. It's like at a uh, discussion meeting. You ever notice? When they start, they're going to call on everyone and you think, oh my God, they're going to call on me. And you sit there not listening to anybody, but trying to figure out something that will just knock them dead. It'll be so clever. <laughs> and finally come to you and you say something that will knock them dead because it's so clever. And it's not connected with what the group's talking about. And they think you're a nut. <laughs> think you're screwy, you know. Uh, you see... Emotionally speaking, not in the material world now, time, there is no time. It's always now. Always now. If it's always now, now happens to be forever. There's no place to go, baby. We're all here together. There's no place to go. You know, we're all doing it. We're all doing the boogaloo together. No place to go, talking to one another, all jazzing at the same time, nothing that you've got to do. It isn't, you're not running the damn thing, so you just hang around doing it and coming down, watching it all come down and talking, hello there, God, hello, God, how are you, God, glad to see you, God, how are you, God, we're all God, this is God, the lights are God, the microphone, the whole, the five becomes clear that the whole thing could be called God. Now that may not fit with the way you look at it. Maybe you feel that there is a cosmic Santa Claus out there. <laughs> well, that's all right. I have no argument with that because that's the way you see it. Uh, cosmic Santa Clauses and I never had much to do with one another somehow. But seeing everything around, the trees, the flowers, the skies, the mickeys, the way, all, all around... It jazzes me just to watch it happen. And when I get in there trying to change it, and I do once in a while, I get myself into hot water. I mean hot water. We're entirely ready to have God, so step section, entirely ready to have God remove all of our defects of character. Well, I don't know how you look at it, but I don't think that we have defects of character. I think we have things that that we've messed up in our drinking careers that we've got to put straight, but that's not a defect of character. That's just a mistake we've got to rearrange, that's all. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Well, I'm not sure we have any shortcomings. I think we've got some stuff to learn. But, you know, humbly asked him, how could you possibly live without realizing that there's some very, than I could possibly be. You know, we live up in the mountain, and I sometimes go out on the, one of the decks we have several of them. we got to go out and look at the stars. And Mickey comes with him. We stand there, looking at the black night with the brilliant stars. And what you've got to say is, My God, isn't that something? Well, we go on to step eight, which has made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Now, as you know, it doesn't say you have to do it. It just says you become willing to make amends to them all. So make a list of them. And then when the appropriate time comes, maybe you will make amends. But you're just willing to do it. Nine, Made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so might injure them or others. So there's no reason to go up to your wife and say, by the way, I've got 95 sweethearts you don't know about that I'm having sex with. I mean, she'll, she'll look at you and belt you right in the mouth. I mean, what, what good does that do? It doesn't do any good at all. But when it will not hurt someone, make amends. Some of the greatest relief I have ever experienced is by making amends to someone. Now, I don't mean to grovel. I don't mean that by every action I have that I've got to go around apologizing for what I do. It's what I do. And some people just don't like what I do at all. Well, that's all right. That's their problem, not mine. So you've got to kind of be gentle with yourself. That's the way it goes. Continue to take personal inventory. Step 10. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Now, what's that word wrong mean? This whole idea of right and wrong is a man-made concept. It's all in your head. There's nothing wrong that we do, except if looked at from this standpoint. If you do something, it steps on someone's toes. That's not the thing to do to improve human relations. And that's really what we're up to. We're all here to get to know one another. That's what it's about. To get closer to one another. That's what it's about. We say all these steps and all read that big book together and we hold hands at the end. What's it all about? To get together, baby. To get together. And I'm not talking about to get together and go to bed. That's alright too if you want to. But I'm talking about, I'm talking about to just get close to another human being to, to realize, as Mickey put it, she was a grain of sand on the great beach of humanity. We're all a grain of sand together. So when you do something, and steps in somebody's toes, then you quickly do something about it within yourself. Maybe to make a man or something. Uh, you know, uh you don't drive yourself crazy about doing these things. And the 10th step isn't something you do at the end of the day. You do it all the time. Every second, you're continually doing the 10th step and watching and observing and being aware of yourself. Not wearing yourself down. Change only happens in the absence of effort. You can use that one too if you want to. Only happens so... Knock off the effort. Watch it all change. If you observe and you accept how you are, change will take care of itself. If you don't, and you try to change the way you are, and we're all trying to do it all the time, and most of you will disagree with me, trying to change yourself, you can do it for a short time, but eventually the same old thing rears its head right, right. Sought through prayer and meditation, to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. I sometimes feel like a naughty-headed kid walking down the corridors of time uh, with my hands in the hands of the universe saying, Baby, you're really something. You're really something. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, the previous 11, we tried to carry this message, the previous 11, to other alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Well, it pretty soon becomes perfectly apparent that there's nothing else to do in life except 12-step work. Now, either AA means what it says or it doesn't mean what it says. If it says we carry out these 11 steps in all of our affairs, that means whether you're talking to the grocery bin, you're talking to the ice man, you're talking to your wife. That's strange you got ice man and wife together. But anyway, no matter you, who you're talking to, uh, you're talking to the lady next door, the man next door, it's all 12-step work. You carry yourself to them because we're all alcoholics and non-alcoholics trying to get together not stay apart, and we spend so much time saying, yes, come closer to me, and then we push like this and push people away. Come on, baby. Come in and join the water. It's warm and fine. So all we do is 12-step work. Some of us exclaim what an order. I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged, said the big book. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We aren't saints. The point is we're willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles, these 12 principles we set down, are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. A that we were alcoholic and couldn't manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And C, that God could and would if he were sought. Now, the AA program is so tremendous. It's so broad. It's so expansive. Let's talk about a little corner of it just for a second. We hear in AA... The word "surrender" usually confuses all of us now, surrender, what surrender our big, fat ego, all these conscious concepts and ideals and demands and opinions that we have, that's what we surrender. How do you do that? Well, let me see if I can uh, see if we can understand together something about surrender. So I'm talking about surrender? Suppose I went to Jack M. Right out here, who, by the way, oh, I got a big kick out of this. I arrived in the airport with Mickey yesterday and no one was out there to pick us up. They'd forgotten or something. I don't know what had happened. You know, and I said, I'm at home amongst the drunks. They forgot again. (laughs) So I phoned Jack and Laurie M. And I said, come out here, get your can out here and pick us up. And they came right out and picked us up. Suppose I went to Jack And suppose he was he's much older than I am in the program, let us say. And I went to him, I'm talking about surrender now. I went to him to tell him all of my troubles. And let's suppose that Jack, in his infinite wisdom, having had lots of experience, listened to me as he did to others with only one idea in mind. I'm still talking about surrender, by the way. And that is to understand what I'm trying to say. He isn't trying to criticize me. He isn't trying to pat me on the back. He isn't going to condemn me or condone me. He just simply wants to understand what I'm trying to say. Now, parenthetically, how often we listen to people and with eyes glued on them, pretending to listen, we say to ourselves, where in God's name did you get that cockeyed idea? And what's the matter with you? you're screwy, you know, rather than accepting them we say that Jack doesn't do this he's li- remember I'm talking about surrender. He listens only to understand there's no goal to understand except to understand. He's not trying to get a seat in heaven, he's only trying to understand now what happens to me when he does this remarkable thing? I say to myself, thank God for jack i've That's what I wanted my whole life, is to someone to hear me. Not to advise me with a bunch of junk. Not to pat me on the back. That's just as screwy as condemning someone. Not to condemn me, just to hear me out. And Jack does this. And it turns me on to tell him more. I'm still talking about surrender. Turn more. What happens to Jack? Jack says, here is another experience of the many I have had that by listening, I see it turns Earl on. And as I listen, and I see he's turned on, by gosh, I get turned on. So he gets turned on. We're both turned on, and I tell him more things about myself and utter safety, and he listens with utter protection as well as safety, and we talk back and forth and listen back and forth to one another Until finally we arrive at a point where all of our energy, our interest, our attention, and our devotion are at one point. And all those things are the same. Interest, energy, devotion, all those things are exactly the same thing. Then words are no longer necessary. I look at Jack and he looks at me and we say, yeah, you understand. Yeah, you understand. Now that's the one. Still talking about surrender, by the way. What happens is, at this point, there is no ego. It's disappeared. There is only listening and understanding. That's a way for surrender. How beautiful would it be if we spent our whole life listening and learning from those around us. And the things around us. Listening and learning from everyone. Some people you listen and learn, you find out what not to do. Other people you listen and learn, you find that's very good. And you listen and you learn what to do. That's when there is no ego. It's gone. You can't surrender it in the process of intensity, of passion, of interest, of devotion to another person or persons. It walks away. It fades. Humility gets born. You hear people say in an AA meeting, I'm not criticizing now at all because I've said it myself. You say, Gosh, I'm sure I didn't get any more humility these days. Well, you know, the guy who says that hasn't got any humility at all. There's no place for the word I and humility in the same sentence. Jack, you can use that one too if you want it. Jack has listened to me with utter devotion. That's when healing happens. It's at that point that we both stand up as two solitary human beings in solitude near one another. Not depending on one another, not avoiding one another, next to one another, but solid and specific human entities standing tall. Now, at this point of healing that we're talking about, that Bill Wilson still lives, that Dr. Bob Smith still lives, Sam Shoemaker, Eddie Dowling, Ebby Thatcher, bless his soul, all Florence Nightingale, if you will, Sister Ignacio, all live at this place of total devotion and understanding to another human being, in which no ego is even possible. Not criticizing and not condemning. Now, what is this magnificent thing that comes as a result of healing? What is it that's right here at this, at this minute, right, right this minute in this audience? Now listen for a second and you'll notice And you'll hear the silence in the room. You see, sweetheart, you see, loved ones, we are together. That's the point. Now, the very force that binds us together in devotion, in interest, in attention, as you listen with our hearts and souls to one another, to me is the very essence of God. God bless you all.